So no, 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 like little funny thing you want to say. I mean, don't we just usually do that spontaneously? Well, I'm trying to give like, you a chance. If you didn't want to be spontaneous, you could say I, something now. Say something funny. Uh, say something funny. Uh, Wacky. Welcome to Tell Me Why I'm Wrong, <laughs> the internet's favorite podcast about why Sophie and I are wrong. Season three. Season three. I'm, I'm Amos. I'm one of your co-hosts. I'm Sophie. I'm the other one. Here's our show. Yeah. This is our show. This is a show where one of us says something and then the other one says something. Tells them why they're wrong. And then someone else says something. They tell them why they're wrong. Exactly. You, you get and it. At the end, we're both right, maybe. We're wrong. Um, this is season three, episode one, um, art and experience experience. Yeah. So, um, yeah, well, welcome, I guess, I guess first thing, just welcome back. Uh, we, we just took a a long break after finishing season two and we're excited to be back and get rolling with season three here. We're going to do another, oh, I don't know, six or seven episodes, something like that as usual, uh, for this season. Um, and uh, we're excited to get going. Uh, Sophie, you have any business? I have one piece of business. I was listening to the Wonder Woman episode. Oh yeah, that was a, or yeah, season two bonus episode. Yeah, it was it was a good one. I thought, but I did too. there is I, there is a moment where I am really embarrassed because I'm sort of free associating and like trying to get out what I was trying to say about like some weirdness about the plot, and it made it sound like I thought that. Uh, Berlin, the city of Berlin, was part of the Habsburg Empire. It's not. It's not oh, at all. Okay, I missed that. Berlin is in the Kaiserreich. It's in the German Empire. Um, of course. And yeah. and Vienna. I was talking about Berlin and Vienna, which both have major food shortages and other problems at the end of the war. But I sort of like conflated them, and I just want everyone to know those two cities are in totally different polities. They're in different. Um, there are different imperial states. And, and more importantly, you you knew that all along. <laughs> I knew that all along, which is important for me because, like, you know, I need to know that stuff. And if I didn't, I would be in trouble. Right. Okay. Well. So don't get me in trouble, folks. <laughs> I don't want to be in someone's trouble. Someone's going to report you to the history yeah. police. Yeah. She didn't even Take know. Take away her she, license. She doesn't know which one Vienna is. It's bad. Yeah. That's well, all I got. Well, luckily, great. No, no, that's good. I, You know, I, I should say that I... I um, I really enjoyed that Wonder Woman episode. I thought it was a lot of fun, and um, I enjoyed going back and listening to it. So, Question, are we going to go see this new Wonder Woman movie that's about Wonder Man? <laughs> about the, like, the oh. creation of Wonder Woman? I mean... Because it has Rebecca Hall in it, and she's really great. I like Rebecca Hall. I don't... I, yeah, me too. Uh, maybe. I don't know. I... I'll say, like, having watched the trailer for that, I'm actually more interested in it than I was when I saw the trailer for And you're, Wonder of course, Woman. referring to, I don't know, what's it called? Professor something in the Wonder Women? Yeah. Something, right? Yeah. Professor Marston in the Wonder Women. And yeah. that's, yeah, that's, that, that's about all that kinky stuff I was talking about. Yeah, except for it seems like to present it in a much less misogynistic light than you were kind of then i like the impression i got from you is that like this was suspect in some way but this seems to like sort of see it in a more liberating fashion i don't know yeah okay well maybe maybe we will check it out maybe we'll maybe we'll yeah. do a uh another field trip we'll see yeah. um yeah. but that's not what we're talking about today today uh-uh. we're talking about art and experience 
and I'll start things off by talking about why the fourth wall is great. Okay. Ready? You're wrong. Okay. Yeah, I'm I'm ready. Ready. Did you say I'm wrong or I'm on? I said you're wrong, but you could be on too. That would yeah, be no, I'm, I'm on and I'm right. Okay, so probably everyone knows this, but just to start out, uh, I want to describe what I mean by the fourth wall. Uh, it's the imaginary barrier between the audience and actors in a theatrical production. Uh, so the other three walls are the sides and the back, and it makes like a little box. Um, and it refers to the convention of not acknowledging the audience or the action, or, or not acknowledging that to the... Oh, not acknowledging the audience or that the action of the play takes place in a fictional space is what I get for trying to read fast. Uh, (laughs) So this kind of goes back to what I'm looking for when I'm watching a movie or a TV show or or theatrical production. And I'm looking for a sort of emotional and intellectual experience that takes me outside my everyday experience in some way. Uh, I want to be transported and swept up. And and I think that requires becoming immersed in the world of the work. So when a work steps back and acknowledges the artifice or, um, or points it out, uh, it breaks that illusion and it interferes with my ability to have the sort of experience I'm looking for, but it gives you a different sort of experience. You object. Uh, Yeah, sure. Um, But mostly one that I find kind of boring and annoying. Um, and maybe pretentious. So let's get a few things straight. I I don't hate all instances of fourth wall breaking. It can be used effectively, especially in comedy. Uh, I think um, Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein by Mel Brooks uh, do that really well. But I think it's artistically risky, and I think more often than not, it it fails. Um, You know, like I said, it it interferes with the immersiveness of the work. Um, But I think it, it... it's also a pr- problematic for another reason. Um, so I guess I would ask like, what's, what's the point of breaking the fourth wall? And I think often it comes down to demonstrating cleverness. So it's, it's a way of the writer to sort of point out how smart they are. Uh, and I think this is really corrosive to art when uh, the aim of the work becomes causing the audience to have a particular opinion about the creator. So um, I'm going to leave that there. I've got more to say about it, but for now, tell me why I'm wrong. Well, this is so interesting. I mean, I can't tell you that you're wrong, that you have a preference for the kind of artistic experience that you want to have. And I got to tell you, like I'm with you in a lot of ways. There are a lot of things that I like very much um, to be immersed in. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also think that you, you may have sort of like, bought this convention a little bit i would i would i would like to like i would like to like denaturize this denaturalize this a little bit it means like you're sort of saying this is this is a way that art gets made and it's a good way and when you break away from it bad things happen but i think the thing is that it's you know the fourth wall or the which, which is like a very specific thing that you've just totally defined, right? Like, yes, it's that. It, it comes from, from theater. So the idea is like you're looking at a room and you, you the audience, comprise the fourth wall. Like there's, it's an invisible wall and you can see mm-hmm. through it, but they can't see right. you. Um, but, you know, the fourth wall and then it like it stands in as a shorthand for like all kinds of things, all kinds of ways of like not acknowledging 
and you've said this really well, like the artifice of, uh, of art, um, right? Like it doesn't have to just be that fourth wall. It can be right. Because like in a movie, there is no, I mean, the, 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 the performers don't know. That yeah. It would there, be, it would right? be like, like not acknowledging the camera. Right. Or, or the or, set. Which, right. And again, like, yeah. like I just always think of that part of blazing saddles where they're riding through the town and then the camera pulls back showing you that it's a, yeah. a set and that the whole movie has been taking place in like a Hollywood back lot. Um, sure. Yeah. But, but like, you know, there's also other ways of um, acknowledging the artifice in novels or yep. poems and things like that. That's not just that. But I mean, this is a really specific technique because it is a technique. Mm-hmm. Like let's not be like beating around the bush. This is, this too is artificial because it requires a, a leap that you say, like everybody agrees that like, we're going to pretend I'm not, like, pretend I'm not here. Right. And like everybody, are, you know, that's artificial too. Um, but this is like a 19th and early 20th century phenomenon. Um, and it, you know, it comes from like mm-hmm. plays like Ibsen. It comes out of naturalism, you know, like this idea of like, you know, you've probably heard this, like the kitchen sink, uh, kind of like verisimilitude. Like we're going to, we're going to make a stage set that looks exactly like, like oh, you go home to your kitchen. Okay. So we're going to put the kitchen sink on stage. And like, you got to remember that, like just talking about theater briefly, but like, this is not like part, and you know this, I mean, even from say like ancient classical Greek sure. theater, like this is not natural like this is not like just how theater always was this is like a specific technique that certain playwrights and directors like created to do certain kinds of things and like you know in but sh- i don't in think naturalism i don't think naturalism yeah. in set design is the same thing as maintaining the it, fourth it, wall it all come but no it's not and not necessarily but it all sort of it debuts around the same time it becomes really popular as a, as like a technique around the same time. So the idea is like, let's make something happen. Like, let's let you watch this, this thing play out um, as if you weren't really there, as if it's as real as possible. And the realness, right? Like everybody wants theater that's quote unquote real, but the realness means something special and specific in this moment. Okay. But like, you know, this, like in the comedy Frances or like in Shakespeare, like you know, the audience was like sitting on the stage. Um, like if you were fancy enough, you would get like a special chair right on the stage and you could like see the actors and, um, you know, all these kinds of things or like novels. When we think about novels, not breaking the fourth wall, right. They're not going to say like dear reader. Right. But like some of the really early most, um, you know, the, the really influential formative novels do exactly that. They say, dear reader, right? Like, dear reader, I married him. That's um, Jane Eyre. So I just want to sort of say, like, this is a this is one way to make art, mm-hmm. but it's not, it's not actually like the quote-unquote, like, natural state of art or original. St- that's not like, n- this is not kind of like what everything should be or always has been. And then like, then like weird radical people who like are too obsessed with their own cleverness just decided like, I'm going to change all that. Right. Like this kind of came into being, it wasn't there before. Right. Okay. That makes sense. So I think that's like an important thing to say. And so like maybe your love of the fourth wall is also kind of like historically or socially contingent. You like it because it's what you're used to. But like, if you lived in the 18th century, you'd be like, what the shit is this? (laughs) right like why are they pretending i'm not here like obviously i'm here we're all here and we're like throwing tomatoes when we don't like the joke that's not the 18th century that's earlier but like you know like it's all kind of based on what we like and i think the the other thing that i just like would say is i mean i'm really curious as to why you think that 
an artist who makes art that you can become immersed in and sort of like the art ignores you, but you become absorbed mm-hmm. in it. Why is that person not pretentious, but somebody who acknowledges the artifice, the, the like inherent artifice of art is like somehow being too clever. I'm really curious. And you really, and like you, this is, we've touched on yeah, this yeah, a few yeah. times. So I'm, so I, you know, I, I don't think all examples of acknowledging the artifice of a work of art are, are pretentious or too clever. And, you know, um, yeah, and, uh, obviously that's that that's not true. Um, but I do think this thing, and I wish I had a good example of this off the top of my head. But I do think this this thing can happen where okay, here's here's what I I guess what I really dislike, and it's going to be it's going to I'm going to narrow this down. So it's not all that's fourth fine. wall breaking, but it, it's yeah. it's fourth wall breaking where where the nature of the fourth wall breaking is is. Um, where it's about creating some sort of relationship between the audience and the creator or the audience in the work. Okay, sure. That well, those are two different things. The creator and the work. Yeah. 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 But it's let's say we've got sort of three parties in this relationship: the the audience, <laughs> the work, and the creator. Mm-hmm. And and. I think what I'm what I'm really objecting to is is using the fourth wall to um, create like a uh, uh, like an, a, an alliance between the the author and the audience looking down at some aspect of the work. So um, I think hmm. you see this in in hmm. like genre work sometimes. Where okay. where a um, where a creator sort of will condescend to the work and will include sort of winks or or fourth wall sorts of you know knowing sort of asides in order to assure the audience that the creator doesn't take it seriously. Where's the line between that and say like satire? Well, um, I. Because satire is all about sort of like the audience and the work are both aware of certain conventions that are being mocked. Right. Well, it's 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 when it's when you've got a a genre work that's ostensibly a work of the genre, like yeah, but also includes um, yeah, like like uh, a certain sort of like snide winking. And I'm, mm-hmm. and again, like this, this is uh, one of those things where I feel like I would be, my argument would be a lot stronger if I had a good example of it. Um, <laughs> I agree. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I guess I can only only think of like um, superhero movies. Uh, so, so you feel like you're being invited to be snide, and you're not interested in that. And I, I think that speaks well of you as like an audience member. Like you're sort of there in an earnest way to like to like participate in something that you've decided that you you know you want to at least give a chance of liking it, um, right? I mean, that's that's yeah. nice. But I think like I think you know art is not. I mean, and right, like there there might be a problem with this in superhero movies because okay, forgive me, but like at some level they are inherently. Uh, a little bit frivolous. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. No, there's <laughs> right, something silly like the about them. Yeah, there's something there's, silly about them. But, so but like, when a movie, you don't... like when the movie like spends too much time sort of like, like where the, where you feel like the creator's saying like, look, I know this is silly. I don't, I don't yeah. really buy it anyway, but just, yeah, you know, go with right. me here. No, like, you're I... like, come on, dude, just like, like stand behind your work. 
Right. Okay. So, so then I want to like, so this is a great segue because there's other kinds of works that are trying to say, um, okay, we can laugh at ourselves a little bit. Jokes are good and, and, and it's nice to have some levity, but I'm, I, the creator am not just silly. You, the audience are not just silly, but some of the issues that we're going to be putting on the stage are more than just silly. They're absurd. They're ridiculous. And they're uh, objectionable. And so one way to like artists who get interested in, and again, like we can have a conversation about not wanting to like not being interested in art. That's, um, that makes a social critique or that's political. Like obviously sometimes you just want to go see a movie, but using the, these, these like quote unquote non Aristotelian techniques to do that. Sorry. Right. Quote so unquote instead, what? Non Aristotelian. So, okay. Hmm. So like, you know, there's idea of like, the Greek theater and you can like tell me that this is all just like, you know, blandified or bodlerized or something. But like the idea is like, you know, you identify with the, the protagonist, you like become, um, like associated with him or her, you like go through the journey, you experience catharsis and then like you feel better yeah. at the end. Right. So that's like one way of thinking about it. Not that Greek plays didn't like acknowledge the audience. They obviously did. Cause they were like religious spectacles too. blah, 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 yeah, right. maybe, but like, that's the idea. And that's how a lot of drama was sort of like being made, um, up until like the early 20th century. Um, but so the, 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 the problem that some people have with this is that, what it ultimately does, and not necessarily just like, I don't know, Oedipus or something, but like uh, Ms. Julie by Ibsen. No, it's not by Ibsen. It's not by Ibsen at all. Um, uh, uh, what is his name? Oh my God, this is terrible. It'll come to me in a second. But so what happens is like, especially with the tragedy, you identify with the protagonist and you see their rise and fall. But ultimately, the critique that goes, that gets made is like, ultimately, it reaffirms the status quo because it's like, oh, look, like this person, they fucked up. They did this. Society is so tough. It makes everything so hard for people. But in the end, like everybody sort of like is sad about the individual who has fallen. And then we all go home and our lives are the same. And that is really associated with naturalism. And so some artists, some theater people and playwrights who start writing at this time start saying like, I don't want to do that. I want the audience to think about these social issues. If we're going to put social issues on stage, let's think about them together and let's change some things. And one way that that starts to happen is through these techniques of, okay, so this is a play. Like here we are all in the space and I'm going to ask you to think about some things and you're going to think about some things and we're going to understand that that's what this project is. It isn't just sort of like entertainment and you're supposed to passively sit there. Um, and it's not about like, I'm so smart. Like, look at me. I'm a playwright. I'm so smart. You are dumb. You should like worship me. It's like, let's be smart together. Let's solve some of these so, issues. Oh, so, so talk to me about this. Cause I'm, I, 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 I didn't really understand any of that. So, okay. <laughs> so to ex explain to me again, how traditional, theater for instance sort of reaffirms social structures um, because, and then because it takes you through like an emotional journey where you identify strongly with the protagonist as an individual not as a type as an individual and even if it's a social problem right like even if it's nora in a doll's house having these problems that are caused by patriarchy and sexism and classism like in the end like she just goes on her way and we have to think about like nor as an individual. Um, and then we don't have to think about the fact that these are like, these are structures and that we're constructed Why by not? them. Um, 
why I mean, not? I don't know. I'm not. I don't, I don't know I don't that know. particular <laughs> work, but I don't, I don't understand why. Because people didn't. They'd be like, oh, it's so, right? It's like, I mean, obviously, people, like, this play was a, a huge scandal. But, like, the idea is, okay, so we're all socially I don't understand why you, can't have, why you can't have perfectly good, like, theater that sort of points out problems with social structures without breaking the fourth wall. That doesn't make any sense to me. You can. Okay. You can. You, you, sure, you sure can. But sometimes people want to do something different. Yeah, okay. <laughs> And they they say, okay, what if so? So Strindberg, I'm just like going to take Strindberg. That's right. Yes, August. Um, so what if instead of identifying so closely with the protagonist that we experience this emotional um, catharsis or whatever? What if instead we were distant and we were able to have a little distance and look more critically um, instead of being so like, oh, I feel what she feels. We're like, oh, she's feeling this. That's because of these things, right? Um, this uh, director and critic who worked with Brecht on Brechtian drama, Carl Weber, used to say, he said, the action on the stage should be observed, can be judged, and should be changed. Like, the idea is you're watching these things and you're thinking, like, right, instead of leaning forward, like, oh, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? You know what's going to happen. And so you're thinking about why is it happening? So another way of breaking the fourth wall is using these um, 17th and 18th century ca- techniques where you have these placards that tell you exactly what's going to happen in the scene before it happens. So instead of being like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? I'm emotionally involved in the outcome. You're like, oh, I know what's going to happen. Blah, blah, blah is going to die in this scene. Okay, let's watch how it happens. And then we can think more clearly about why these things are going on. And this is something that, you know, people who are like, I don't think Strindberg's making it happen. We need a different way. They're starting to use these techniques. It doesn't mean you have to like it, but it has purpose. Sure. And it has a purpose beyond just being clever or pretentious, right? In some, for a lot of people, so for example, I'm talking about Brecht, he's trying to reach a working class audience. So there's nothing pretentious about it. It's meant to be very clear and, um, you know, not to talk down to the audience, but to sort of meet them where they're at. Hmm. okay again like as an aesthetic technique you don't have to like it but like it's it's i think it's much it's about much more than just sort of like showing off sure yeah but it is about showing it is about showing right and it's it's about making something explicit yes um that may not be explicit to members of the audience who are just going through their lives and they're not having a moment Right, that's the that's the exploding brain moment. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, okay. Is it is it that you feel like you're you're precious, and I don't mean that in an obnoxious way, but like you're actually actually precious. Sort of leisure time is being colonized by like people making you think about shit. Look, I'm happy. Like, to I don't think... want to think about this. I just want to watch a Here, movie. Here's the and, thing. Like, I'm, just... I'm happy to think about shit. Um, I think about stuff a lot. Um, for a lot of that. I might I I sometimes feel like this sort of thing is a is a feels like a category error to me though. What does that like, mean? Like if you want to talk about social issues in that way where where you need to be explicit like here's what's happening, let's talk about why or let's think about why this is happening and um you know, maybe you're better off in a nonfiction uh genre 
or a nonfiction media, nonfiction media. So art is only supposed to be just like, see, this is where we go back to your thing about how like all cultural changes, social or all cultural change is really technological change. So culture is just this decoration on society and artists should just like stay out of these serious things. And I, I just like, I just can't accept that at all. I mean, I think the most powerful art can be fun and funny and frivolous and silly. I mean, think about Three Penny Opera. That play is hilarious and, like, body and ridiculous, but it also, like, has some really serious things so, to well, say well, let's, and let's, gets let's, you Time, time out, time out. Yeah. There's a huge difference between... Um, there's a huge difference between saying, like, uh, that um, sometimes art that's too much about, like, social problems is is doing something that would be uh better served by a nonfiction uh medium and saying like art only needs to be like delightful and silly and fun like art can be important and powerful and um yeah and and like life-changing to people without being um yeah without without approaching social issues in the way that you're talking about well, sure. I mean, that's a lot of art, but I think what I'm trying to sort of say is like, I, I think that there's a difference between say a superhero movie breaking the fourth wall in a way that's snide and then like a whole history of, um, artistic techniques from like, you know, I don't know, the medieval period forward that don't, um, engage with the question of the fourth wall at sure, all. Okay. Like, the fourth wall is a new thing that people made up, and now we all think that it's natural and should be there forever, and we get mad when it's broken. But maybe, maybe, but that's maybe not, what I'm saying is we're not mad that it's getting broken. Maybe we're mad about the way people are breaking it. Sure. Okay. So, like, one of the things that can happen in, in you know, and again, like, I think we have a maybe the category I- issue or the definitional problem we're having is that, like, I'm taking breaking the fourth wall to mean, like, a whole range of things that are not, uh, that, like, aren't just about like looking to the audience, right. Or like looking in the camera. Can you talk a a little bit about what some of those are so we can get on the same page? Sure. Sure. Okay. So like, I'll give you, I'll give you like the example that I had. Um, Okay. I'll I'll give you, I'll give you an example that someone told me about at one point where um, they were, they were watching a play and it was a, it was a Brecht play. So there's some of this going on and the actor who's like a really phenomenal actor was doing a great job and being amazing and wonderful. And then he seemed to miss a line and to, and he said he was started to do his speech and then he was like a line, a line. Somebody give me the line. And then, but like, but he was completely in control. And then he just went right back into the speech. And that was a moment of sort of like, let's all remember that I'm an actor here and I'm not really Galileo. I'm making, I make, I, we're all pretending that I'm Galileo, but like, remember that I'm not. And then let's like continue to think about these things. That's, that's one way. Um, another way is just in the text, right? Like where, you know, and this happens maybe it's just dramatic irony, but like you, the audience knows something that the characters don't know, or you understand them doing something that they, they don't understand that they're sure. doing. Um, and, and you have this moment of like, you're, you're pulled out and you're like, Oh my God, this person is awful. They're terrible. Like, I can't believe that this person has just said and done this thing. And they think that they're completely in the right, but I know that they're right. in the wrong. And then you have like an apersue, right. And you're like, Oh my God, 
I put it together. And nobody on stage has put it together, but I have. And then, you know, you're thinking in that moment. And you're not thinking about the characters. You're thinking about bigger issues and, and, and moral stuff or ethical stuff. Yeah, and that doesn't seem like breaking the head. fourth wall at all, though. Ma- well, right. maybe, maybe not. But it's, I mean, it's part of sort of, but, but it's a tech, like, these are intentional technically imbued moments that are meant to make you have that experience, which is really different from, like, let's just pretend the audience isn't here at all. Uh, okay. I, that seems like a confusion to me. Like, it seems like, like what, what you just described there is an instance where, you know, the work is meant to have a particular effect on the audience, which it then has. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, whereas breaking the fourth wall is like, trying to have an effect on the audience by means of pointing out artifice. Um, and what you just, I don't know what you just described about the, um, about using dramatic irony didn't, doesn't necessarily seem to me to. Well, I think it's a continuum. I think it's a spectrum, okay. right? But again, and... like, I'm, I, I guess just to clarify, like I'm, I'm not criticizing uh, works of art that have an intended effect on the audience. Well, that's all Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> But you, you are like, you are, um, bothered by that being too transparent. You want the intended effect to happen behind the scenes. So you don't know what's happening. You want it to act upon you without you sort of like having to be aware of it. And I think that that is a problem. (laughs) Why? Because you're like, I just want to be seduced, right? Like, like, like Wagner is like, he wants everything to be so beautiful that you're brought along with it and that you're just like, you're completely like undone and just sort of almost like just distraught and crazy by how beautiful, you know, like the end of uh, like the Tristan is and, and like, you're just like, whoa. Um, But like, you know, this is a problem because now you've like gone along with something that's potentially like you've you've gotten seduced and you're like oh yeah and now you've sort of swallowed all the politics of this piece without even knowing that you've done it right like back to brecht he says he doesn't want his actors to have his singers to have voices that are too beautiful because then no one will listen to the words and they'll all just be carried along like oh that song is so pretty there should be some discord between the maybe the prettiness of the tune and the and the like poorness of the voice or like the prettiness of the tune and the the meanness of the words so that you're doing some thinking instead of just getting sort of swept along and i think that you know in a political climate where people are just getting swept along by emotion um art that makes you think is like so valuable and you can get people to go to a movie or a play you can't get people to sit down and read a nonfiction expose right like that's the idea is that like people are just like all right i'll go to this play but whoa now i'm thinking i mean you can't get people to go to plays <laughs> right but you could before okay. movies and that's when some of this like right you know that's yeah, when yeah, some yeah. of this is happening and in other places you can get right. people to go to plays. i was just talking to some people who were talking about this totally like this would never happen in america right like or it would happen but no one would go see it this this play about this like experimental play about foucault that was like hugely popular and everybody went to see Jeez. it where was that yeah Hmm? Where was that? In France. Okay, yeah. Yeah. It, like, toured all over France, and people went to see it, and there was lots of discussion about it. That would not happen. Here so this see, is, you know. I mean, how to put this? This this is drifting a little bit into, like, a different problem I have. Oh, so, good. Let's which, get to which it. Which is just, like, 
I mean, I think you're, yeah, I already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, which is, um, (laughs) my, my ambivalence about political art. Yeah, I mean, clearly that's at the heart of this. It's right? not at like, the. There's, I know there's you're like, say, I, I, you're, I mean, I think they're they're like separate but related issues. Like, like I have problems with fourth wall breaking that don't have anything to do with politics. Sure, uh, sure, sure. Um, but they, but then it does bleed over, right? Yeah, right, right, right. Because like, yeah. and I, and I think I think sort of what I was saying about the uh, the category mistake um, is sort of is sort of founded in in my distrust of of political art. So, but this is what's so interesting to me that like, I don't understand because you are like, I mean, we've talked before, we've talked on this very podcast about like, um, you being like a a recovering savvy head Mm -hmm. or something and being very politically engaged and very interested in thinking about politics at a high level. Um, and not just like in a knee jerk, like I, I'm, I, you know, I always vote blue or red or whatever, you know, but so why, yeah, (laughs) but. But why? Yeah, just to clarify, yeah. why can't art partake? Like you, you, you think politics are important. Yeah, definitely. You think reading and thinking and talking about politics are important. So why is art not allowed in that? So space? art, art is definitely allowed into political space, and it, and it can't help but be in that space because you know I think good art is about um, like the human experience and and like values. And, mm-hmm. and ethics, and I think those things are are fundamentally political because they're about you know politics is about how people live together. So, sure. yeah, yeah, defined. yeah. Um, so at that at that high level, I think absolutely all art is political, and art can't help but be political, and that's all great. And I and I like thinking about art in that way. I th- I think sure. where we run into where art run in, runs into problems is when it gets too specific about the content of the politics. Sure. Um and I think Right, like you're going to like nobody's going to like that play that's like you wrote about recycling right. to make people recycle. Right. Like that's And, I, and so but, it, but, I mean it could it could be that we just have like like where we draw that line is is different about like you mean, Yeah, you exactly. Where we draw exactly line? Yeah. like like w- for like there's a point where for me where i'm like okay like if you're if you really if the point of this work is to make an argument for you know political position x y and z like just make Mm -hmm. the argument you know but why can't you make the argument through art why does it have to be like some exposition that has to be like an essay um it can't be a mural it can't be a painting it can't be a poem it can't be a play like can't be a movie it has to be like why though why does that why does only one genre get to make arguments i mean art makes arguments all the time mm. or like it's okay to make an argument about the human condition but not about like capitalism or something right like you know i mean obviously that that gets us closer to like i i support this particular political party or these policies but yeah. i mean why like if you're if like if it's okay for art to make a stance to have a stance about say poverty or about um cruelty uh you know around material distribu- like distribution of mat- of material security like why why can that only happen in a vague abstract way and not in a cr- like a concrete way uh, I'm not sure how to answer that <laughs> Because it's like pornography, you know it. You know it when you yeah. see. Yeah. You know when it's gone too far, and you're like, "This is too didactic." Right. But like, can something be instructive without being didactic? That's the thing. I, th- I mean, I think it can be, but and and again, like maybe we just have like different different points where we think something has crossed that line. 
Well, it has to be smart enough. It has to be good enough. It has to do it well. Like Walter Benjamin says, the thing about political art is that people think it has to have the right politics, but that's not right. What's actually is it needs to have all of the stuff, all the aesthetic stuff, all the stuff that makes it good art. And then it can have politics. Like it can't just be sort of like but, this, but right? Part, That's the problem with agitprop, right? Part of great right? art is like, um, I think is 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 leaving things unsaid. You know what I mean? Yes. And and, and being open, but you leave being, the space for it. You. Right? Well, you and, say, and being like, open to interpretation, this, but... like that's the yes. thing. Like great great art needs to be needs to have like a certain amount of uh, interpretation, and I. Right. And that's why you leave the audience with like, I'm not sure what's going to happen. You guys have to take this up. It's yours now. Talk about it. Right. I mean, even Roman and Juliet says that, right. Go now and talk more of these sad things, which is again, like a lot of these people that I'm talking about are looking to the early modern period to bring some of this stuff back in. I mean, it's not new, right? Like when Puck says like, you know, it's, it's, you're going to judge us now. So please have pity on mm-hmm. us. That's like Shakespeare, sure. you know, that's not like, that's not like just that you like, don't like Dan Harmon being winky or something you know mm-hmm. yeah yeah um so we we're, we're going kind of long on this topic i think we should i think yeah. we should stop it there and and uh maybe uh, yeah i i've got more thoughts about this but um i think you just haven't seen as enough um like you haven't you haven't been exposed enough to like the good version of this you've yeah, only seen like maybe the bad maybe version. that's it maybe that's it um <laughs> but uh let's let's go on to uh topic number two Okay, great. Well, I think this like kind of kind of connects a bit. Um, so I'm I I want to know about phenomenology. Okay. Well, so we've been talking about experience, the experience of art. So here we go. What the hell is phenomenology, Amos? <laughs> I've heard it defined as the philosophy experience of uh, phenomena and of consciousness. So far, so good. Um, but the two uh, phenomenologists who I'm like the most familiar with. Uh, GWF mm. Hegel and Simone de Beauvoir are oh. sometimes disqualified. They're not really phenomenologists, I've heard, or their work isn't really phenomenology, which kind of leads me nowhere because Hegel wrote a book with phenomenology mm-hmm. in the title, and Beauvoir's masterpiece specifically addresses the experience of being a woman. I've also heard uh, that phenomenology okay. is supposed to be only about capturing or analyzing a universal experience, which frankly makes no sense because isn't experienced by its definition subjective and deeply personal. Plus, Beaufort's whole point is that the experience of being a woman is inescapably about being other. So how can that be universal? The whole point is that you're excluded from the universal. Um, but then I've heard of a set of philosophers whose work is defined as phenomenology of the particular. So there goes that definition out the window. So what gives phenomenology? Amos, explain. Tell me why I'm wrong. Okay. So... I, let me let me just start by saying that I'm not an expert on phenomenology, but I've I've read a little bit of it. Uh, so some some of this stuff I'm not going to have good answers for, and some of it I will. So the 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 Hegel thing I, is is it's a little bit of a historical accident. Um, sort of why Hegel doesn't get included with phenomenology, even though he wrote the book Phenomenology of yeah. Spirit. Which which was maybe the first book with Phenom- the word in phenomenology the in the yeah. title, like right. the, the very first one. So and then they kicked him out. Well, it's not so much that they kicked him out; it's more that other people came along and said, "We like this word phenomenology. We're going <laughs> to use it to mean this completely different thing." Mm-hmm. 
that's that's more of it. So uh, I and, and I should I should say I've read very very little Hegel, even though we have the same birthday. You and Hegel have the same birthday. I mean, different different <laughs> year. The owl of Minerva flies only at midnight. Mm-hmm. That's what he said. He did. Um, so. <sighs> Yeah, I mean, without going into too much detail, uh, Immanuel Kant in the Critique of Pure Reason sort of posits this division between noumena and phenomena. Mm -hmm. And um, noumena is sort of like uh, things accessible by sort of reason alone versus phenomena, which are is the the world of... um, experience like sensory experience so that's weird because doesn't numinous mean like things that are in some way like uh, unearthly right yeah i mean that's the idea it's things beyond the possibility of sensory experience which may or may not be accessible in other ways okay um and phenomena are things that are accessible by sensory experience um it's the world of appearances you know um uh uh pino is the greek for uh to appear okay uh, so so hegel is sort of talking about i guess he's sort of like talking about the world of experience and how it's a, a manifestation of pure spirit in some way which i, I couldn't really explain so, but later on <laughs> but don't in, worry because he wrote like 700 pages explaining it uh, yeah no go go ahead and read <laughs> hegel everything will become very clear <laughs> but, but so hegel was writing in like maybe i don't know 1820s 1830s Something like that. Um, Kant wrote, I think, Critique of Pure Reason came out in, like, I think, 1795, something like that. Um, then in, like, the 19-teens, Edmund Husserl... Um, have you seen... I'm sorry, I just have to interrupt. Have you seen that, that, like, thing with the two cats talking and one of them is, like, the advisor and one of them the grad students? Like, if you haven't read Hegel's, then you'll never understand Husserl. And then you have to read Heidegger. And, like, I just want to read Derrida. <laughs> And and like, but now I have, I have to go back and read these Nazis, and it's very it's funny. I'll send it to you. Okay, yeah. uh, maybe we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. Um, so Husserl, he was a professor in uh, Heidelberg, I think. Um, but in and he started using phenomenology to to in the specific way that's that's sort of more, um, more in line with with what. You, the, those other sort of versions of phenomenology that you were talking about. So he he started doing these um, basically like like subjective analyses of like thought processes mm-hmm. and sort of like giving these very minute descriptions of of like how the mind works from this sort of first person perspective. This is Husserl. Uh, yep, uh, and this became very very. Um, I don't know. It became very popular. So, kind of the idea is is if you you know Kant has this distinction between noumena and phenomena, and everyone sort of thought they sort of understood you know the phenomena and the phenomenal world, mm-hmm. um, but no one was quite sure what to do with this idea of of the noumenal. Um, and Husserl is sort of like, don't worry about that. That's beyond the possibility of experience. Let's let's just set that aside and and go in and do the this sort of analysis and or or um description of 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 experience itself um because that's that's all that's really available to us and and the other thing that Husserl did that was sort of um really revolutionary is he wanted to do this 
these descriptions in a way that didn't include any theory. So he would talk about like bracketing all our theory. Hmm. Like let's let's set aside all all scientific and philosophical theories and we'll just set them aside and we'll just describe what we're actually experiencing um absent any theory. And what so that sounds great, but why? Hmm. Like what what does that get you? I guess you understand mind and thought better uh, so it's a good question i mean I, i'm not like hostile to the project i just don't really understand why a philosopher would do it like let's just feel what we feel and write about it well not well he, he wasn't so much talking about feelings but but experience uh, yeah thought and experience yep um why did husserl do that and why did he think it was important i think he, maybe he thought that that was sort of like all you really could do with philosophy mm-hmm. um Another way of looking at it, though, is this gets complicated. So ancient philosophy was you you can't understand Husserl without reading Plato. (laughs) Uh, So so like ancient philosophy sort of took the world, the 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 world of experience as a given Mm -hmm. because it was, you know, quote unquote, naive about epistemology and so so ancient philosophers never they were never asking questions like you know is the world real how do we know that the world is real those those weren't questions that like ancient greek philosophers asked you know starting in like the 16th century descartes starts asking those sorts of questions Mm -hmm. like you know what's knowledge what's real how how do i know that this world that I experience is really real and these sorts of questions were plaguing philosophy for hundreds of years so one one way of looking at it is is Husserl is saying like, well, we don't need to ask this question about whether or not the world is real. It's enough to say that this is the world that we experience. Mm-hmm. So oh, that makes sense. Sure. So let's understand this world that we experience and how we experience it, and and what it, um, and rather than trying to reason about what the fundamental nature of the world is, let's just describe the fundamental nature of the world and set aside all our theorizing. Um, and, and, you know, you know, surprising no one, he basically ends up with something that looks an awful lot like Plato, <laughs> uh, which you can, you can sort of say like, okay, Husserl, I see what you did there. Or you can think it was like, oh, okay, well, well, you know, when it comes like, when you set aside the history of modern philosophy and sort of approach the world of experience from this quote unquote naive stance, uh, again, you end up sort of in the same position that Plato was in sure. maybe. Um, so yeah, so that's sort of Husserlian phenomenology. And then uh, one of his students was uh, Heidegger, um, who... Boom, 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 yeah, boom, who was I feel like big... he should have like a mean, scary theme song that comes when his name is... Because right. he was a Nazi. Yeah. Yep, he was a total Nazi, um, which we don't approve of. Um, <laughs> many people consider him the most important philosopher of the 20th century. Sure. And um, a Nazi. So my thing is just he mm-hmm. can be both. He can be. Right? He I mean, I feel be. like people want to rescue him. From, like, they're like, to rescue him as, as an important philosopher, as the imp- most important philosopher, they want to, like, say he's, he's not a fascist. Or other people are like, he's a fascist, so he's disqualified. And, like, what's actually really probably the case is both. Should, I mean, definitely a fascist. For sure. Know. And, like, just, yeah. just, really, just really unsettling as a, as a dude. Right. So, I mean, he, he did a couple of really awful things. He, he uh, actively particip- participated in the de of the university and ended up getting 
Husserl, his teacher, fired and then took his seat um, and purged a lot of other Jews from the university and, and was very, by all accounts, was very enthusiastic about all of that. Um, but I, I mean, I think, I think it's an interesting question of why people seem so invested in making him not a Nazi. Uh, and people I, are I, like, he just got, he got caught up. He got confused. And it's like, it's really yeah. clear. There was no confusion. And even when he, like some no. of the things he writes after the war, it's so strange because he writes as if like certain kinds of destruction like might happen, but hadn't right. just happened. And you're like, no, yeah. that just happened, dude. Like, and they, they just found a, a, a bunch of letters between him and his brother from before the war too, that make it very clear that he was a, a virulent anti-Semite. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, it's, it's really not. not and he sort of discussion. wants to give being to all of these like non-sentient things like rocks or something, but like Jews don't have being. <laughs> well, they do, but so, so we'll, we'll get to that in a second. But I, I guess the other thing I want to say is, is I think that this thing happens with certain philosophers where people can't just study them. They have to be sort of acolytes. Yes. Yes. Um, I think that that happens with Plato. It happens with Heidegger. Uh, and it, it probably happens with Hegel. Um, oh, definitely. With Hegel. People get like, just like very personally invested yeah. in them and they become students of that person, right. not just students of that person's philosophy or, right. or, or not scholars of that person's right. philosophy. Right. Um, and I think that really happens with Heidegger for a lot of reasons. Um, partly, you know, he was brilliant. Uh, partly, I think it's the way he writes. Uh, he, he has this deliberately uh, obscure way of writing. And I think the way he would say is, is he's trying, he has to rescue language from platonic ontology. And that means that he has to use language in non-traditional ways well, all those guys but it I ends mean, up having this sort of poetic effect sure he writes very poetically but all the, i mean like rigori says that she has to rescue like make up her own language so she can get out from under like patriarchy they they all yeah, say that. that that comes that all sort of comes from heidegger mm. he's he was the, the i think he was the first person to say like like because of because the world has been corrupted in some way uh language itself has been corrupted and so i need to use it differently i think he, he was the first one to sort of make that uh, methodological argument. Mm. Um, and for him, the source of that corruption is, is Plato and platonic ontology. And, and he would say that Heidegger or, or Husserl was, you know, fell victim to this. So he would say like Husserl, he thought he was set aside, setting aside all his, all his theories and just describing the world as it actually is. But he actually, he never set aside his platonic ontology. And so he was just when he was describing quote unquote the world, he was actually just reading back into it this hmm. this platonic ontology. It's so interesting, right? I mean, he's like just writing in the moment that he's writing it and like the, the problem he thinks of the like the corruption of the world, he's like it's Plato. Like really? Like really, dude? It's like you've just had the Great War and you're about to have another one and there's like all kinds of like terrible stuff going on and you're gonna blame Plato? Like that's what you think the problem is? Come on. Like the most pressing issue facing Germany in the nineteen twenties was clearly Plato. Ancient Greek philosophy. Yeah, like, oh okay, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's it's good. Not very uh, Compelling is an argument. Oh, oh! Just before I forget, the other thing I wanted to say about why people get so invested in Heidegger, or, or why you know serious philosophy students have these weird ideas about him not being as awful as he really was, right. is, is I think the way philosophy students learn about history yeah. and the history of of the people they study is often like a twenty minute segment <laughs> of a lecture, yeah. 
or or that that you know someone else who is a big fan of that philosopher gives them in a class yes, one day yes and yes. then like a few little tidbits that get thrown out and they never actually study the person as a historical figure or the um or the historical context that they were writing in and and so they you end up with this view of history that's like just like a series of books <laughs> <laughs> with with like a few facts about the person you, you know a few like um illuminating anecdotes about the authors of the book and so that's how you understand history well so that's interesting because like i wouldn't insist that like philosophy as a discipline has to become history but at the same time you know since since so many of these things happen well if you're going to make a historic if you're going to make an argument about an author then you need to know the history that's probably right and and it's like there has to be it has to be more than just the margin right exactly like you could you could make an argument that like uh Heidegger's work is not fascistic. And that's an argument you could make without knowing a lot about history just by looking well, at the work. You would need to know about, about you have to know like what fascism what fasci- is. Right? right. And you have to know like what fascist thought consists of. Um I think you would be wrong. You would be wrong. Um but like, you know, you can but if you're gonna make an argument about Heidegger himself, then you, you really need to know the history. Right, right. Um so where was I going? Oh right. So so platonic ontology, like like that's per heidegger that's an ontology that's an an ontology is is the the um branch of philosophy that deals with what being is Mm -hmm. what it means for something to be so uh, heidegger's characterization of platonic ontology is that a thing is most real when it's um not moving when it's outside (laughs) of time like the most real Mm -hmm. things are things that are uh eternal timeless and eternal um and and the way to know something is to um, observe it dispassionately and just describe it in like sort of mathematical ways. Um, so I'm looking at something on a desk right now, and Heidegger's description of a of a Platonic Husserlian way of approaching it would be like say like, well, it's cylindrical. It's about eight inches tall. Uh, it tapers a little bit at the bottom i can see through it um and whereas Heidegger would say like that no that's that's a very unnatural way of of um understanding uh, of describing a, a that glass. thing a, a glass yeah 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 that's 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 a uh really an inauthentic way of describing it that that depends upon thinking that this sort of scientific way of describing it is the is the most authentic or the, or the primary way when really our, our experience of it is as a glass, like our primary experience of it isn't as just like a transparent cylinder, (laughs) right? Our, our, as human beings, our experience of it is as a glass, as a, as a tool. Right. And that's, Uh, he gets really into those wooden shoes, the peasant's shoes. He has like a whole okay. thing about the peasant shoes, but like, but never the but, peasants themselves. Sure. So, you know, the, the way it was explained to me is, is Heidegger would say that, um, bacon is ontologically <laughs> prior to pigs. Prior? What do you mean? Like ontologically, like, like, um, wait, in, in, Heidegger would say this or? Yeah. Okay. Heidegger, Heidegger would say it. Yeah. Like pigs, pigs are for bacon and that's like an onto that's, that's, well, that's like fascistic. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. It, c- because there's this sort of like instrumental way of yeah, looking at the world of like a, um, another being that's like yeah, you, you know, your, up, your being is is for my use, 
Right. Or, or my, my, and, and he would say, this isn't like an ethical statement. He's just, you know, just that's the way we encounter the world mm-hmm. is as, um, you know, he, he draws a distinction between, uh, what was it? Uh, being at hand, which is that sort of platonic way of understanding things and readiness to hand, mm. which is, is, uh, experiencing something as kind of as a tool. Um, right. And then there's like special ways of using tools. Like he writes that thing that's like, um, like if you're painting a fence, like you're painting it blue, like the blue gets used up. But if you're an artist and you're using blue, it like re like your art refills the blue. Like it, it uses it without using it up. And like, that's really flattering if you're an artist, but also what? I don't understand. Like that's a hierarchy of, of use. That's like, really strange and like kind of poetic and beautiful but also just like uh i've never experienced that i've never been like well now this blue is used up but well actually you know what forget it that's totally not true it, i actually have had that experience and then you look at it a blue in a beautiful painting and it's restored to itself yeah yeah okay. so and, and just just like heidegger was tremendously influential in post-war uh europe continental european right. philosophy um existential like like heidegger's phenomenology is is also also sort of considered the first kind of like the first existential mm-hmm. philosophy because mm-hmm. because a lot of what he's what he ends up talking about is like what what human existence means um or you know what it means yeah what human exists like the facts of human existence which are sort of these facts of of experience um and so anything related to existentialism right. or post-structuralism or postmodernism, all all of that sort of comes through Heidegger. Um, so now these other types of phenomenology, I should say he was also tremendously influential in um, certain branches of psychoanalysis mm. where there's, there's sort of phenomenological existential right. psychoanalysis that sort of like takes his analysis of authentic and inauthentic being and uses that as a sort of the basis for therapy. Um, so there's a lot of interesting stuff there. Yeah, for sure. Um, now this idea of like, I, so, well, I, I, I guess, I guess to pause there, does, does that explain to you why totally. people might say that phenomenology oh. has to be about universal experience? No. I mean, because, I mean, I understand why Heidegger would be positing his own experience as universal. I mean, yeah, everyone, right. everyone does that, but especially like, um, uh, Nazis. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like, right. I was going to say something more, um, polite, but like sort of, um, re- violently retrograde, yeah. um, so- powerful men, but like, but like, right. So like Beauvoir is always saying like the, the problem for women is that like, and I don't know how to pronounce this word, like existant, right? Like existence that, that, that right? like, well, or, or is this the French with, with version? A t- no, just existent with a T like women oh, yeah, yeah. are not an existent. Like they, they don't oh, get yeah, to yeah, have, yeah. like she doesn't use being cause she's a Marxist and she has mixed feelings about Heidegger, but like, you know, like she's like the problem with women is like men get to be an existent or an existant. But, but women have to, like, we aspire to have that because we're prevented from having it. And hmm. even when we do have it, we're not acknowledged as having it. And so therefore, like, our experiences are, like, don't count as human experiences. And that this is, like, always the problem for women because they're both human, uh, like, undeniably, and always not. Like, somehow they're, like, because their experience can't be universalized in a 
system by which like in which like the experience is always always quote unquote always already male right so so i guess i guess not to say that they're correct but you know like a, from a heideggerian perspective I, I mean i think you're i think what you're saying is basically right but from a heideggerian perspective they would say like we're describing we're we our our aspiration anyway is to describe ex, uh experience human experience and again, using that sort of Husserlian technique of bracketing all theory or all spec, which really ends up meaning sort of like they're trying to bracket, I guess they're trying to bracket specificity almost. Mm-hmm. But how can uh, you do that? So, so maybe, maybe you can't, but my, my point is that, that, that that's their aspiration. So a phenomenology that comes along and says, no, 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 I'm, I'm actually, I'm actually trying to um, describe like this particular experience of these particular people. Like they would say, oh, well, you're missing the point of phenomenon. Well, I, I think that's not now, what Bovard's saying. You can agree saying. or disagree about. That. I think she's saying you're all you're already describing the thing, and this is the, like this is the problem of the Enlightenment, right? Like the thing that you're claiming is universal is already specific. No, I I, I totally get that. It's it's just a question of like what their aspirations. So like are. by rejecting. By saying, like, your experience doesn't get to contribute, doesn't get to count because it's too specific, like, they're they're making they're, their own specific into the universal in a way that, like, is just, like, wrong. Like, it no, just I, doesn't make I, any sense. I think that's true. And I, and I think it sort of points to a, a methodological problem with phenomenology, hmm. which is um, uh, sort of verifiability. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? Like, like, like if the source of – if the source of authority here is just experience – like anyone can kind of write whatever they right. want and say like, Oh no, no, this is phenomenal. No, this is what experience is. But that could be like auto auto ethnographic writing or something, you know, like yeah. well, I'm going like, to stand outside like, myself and describe like, right. Well, it's like, it's like her Searle said, like, this is the content of in, in form of experience. I've, uh, you know, I bracketed all my theory and then Heidegger comes along and says, no, 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 you didn't bracket mm-hmm. everything. This is actually the, the form and content of experience. And then Beauvoir says, well, you're, you're embedded in maleness mm-hmm. and uh, you've, you've excluded female experience. Here's what experience actually is. And it's, it's this sort of, um, uh, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a methodological problem. And, and, you know, I had the same experience reading, reading Heidegger in college where I'd read him and be like, okay, I think I basically get what he's saying. Mm-hmm. I, I have no particular reason to think he's right about anything. Right. Of this. Okay. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, and I'm not sure why he thinks it's true. He's <laughs> like, well, he's just describing experience. Like, uh, okay. Right. And it's, it's, the whole thing is a little unsatisfying, especially to someone who's used to reading philosophy where people make arguments for why they think things are true. Right. And they, and, rather right. than just sort of bald assertions. <laughs> um, but yeah. and, you know heidegger would say well it's a strength of my approach like i don't need to make arguments uh-huh. i just tell you i just what tell you true. how it is yeah. yeah it's like oh okay thanks martin <laughs> um, not that interesting though go back to your hut um but i think this ended up being a real poison in in, <laughs> in thought like this idea that you don't actually need to support anything you're saying you just need to uh criticize someone else uh yeah and then and then say your thing i think it's is this, really like, destructive does this, yeah uh, yeah for real and um does this connect to your like unease about identity politics 
Cause you're, so, cause it's like, I, you know, I'm speaking from my, like my own subjectivity, I'm going to tell you this experience and then you like, you're supposed to do something about, it. I mean, this is the, this is like, I, I actually don't have that much of a problem with identity politics. I'm just framing it in the way that like, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, have I don't, some, I don't know. I'm ambivalent, but or, yeah, yeah, yeah. As, as a white man, let me tell you what's the, <laughs> what the deal with identity politics is. So, I mean, that, that's a, that's <laughs> a huge topic. <laughs> Maybe something we need to get into more broadly at some point, I guess I would just say like. Uh, I don't think there's any such thing. Either there's no such thing as identity politics, or ev- all politics is identity politics. I, I kind of and agree. Yeah, and it's just a question of of who gets to say that their identity is sort of default politics, and everything right. else is identity sure. politics. Um, and I and I think understanding politics as a question of identity and and uh, campaigns, political campaigns, as being demonstrations of whose side you're on, uh, I think you'll you'll go pretty far in understanding. Uh, politics um through that lens <laughs> uh but i do i do get i guess i would get queasy about uh like an intellectual argument that mm-hmm. says you know this is some fundamental nature of the truth that you don't have access to by virtue of your identity mm-hmm. yeah that seems problematic um you know, or 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 arguments that say like I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you X Y or Z uh, about the world, and you know you can't argue against me because of your identity mm-hmm, or something. Mm-hmm. Like those sorts of things make me nervous. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it gets it gets it gets complicated. Um, I mean, at some level, that's all arguments ever. You think? Well, I mean. No, but I do feel more more than we would like to acknowledge. More maybe. than we would maybe like that's to the acknowledge, of, and I think more arguments. Than I think it ought to be the case. Yeah, and I think especially like sort of looking into the past, there's a, a huge amount of that like assumption that sort of like I have a certain kind of authority to speak, and so I'm going to, and you can either understand me or you can be wrong, mm-hmm. um, and like. Right. I mean, that's a whole other can of worms. But no, I think I understand what phenomenology is. I, I think I get it. And I feel very like happy that I learned something. But I also kind of don't know if I think it makes sense as like a subdiscipline. Sure. Yeah. No, I think. <laughs> Maybe so I only I, think that because you think that. But like because you've just explained it to me. Well, but like. No, I mean, right. Like, honestly, like, I, you know, you shouldn't make too many judgments about phenomenology until you spend some time with someone who really understands it. You know, I, I have a very um, uh, cursory familiarity with it, um, and it's the sort it, it it is the sort of thing that the people who are into it are really into it. Yeah, um, which kind of creeps me out a little bit. Um, <laughs> but you know, they they are really into it, and and I guess what else do I want to say about? I guess the other thing I want to say about Heidegger before we move on from him is, is I, I reading being in time in college was one of the most unpleasant <laughs> intellectual experiences of my life. <laughs> like I, I hated reading that book. Like it was, it, I honestly, like it just, it felt like someone was driving a screwdriver through my head. Oh, it's so, uh, obtuse and, um, just like willfully obscurantist. And you know Heidegger, he can he can say whatever he wants to say about how he needs to reclaim language from Platonic ontology, and that's why he needs to write like uh, like a jerk. But 
you know, after a while you get the feeling yeah. that he's like, you know, he's just, he's playing a game. Yeah. Um, and I, I felt like I didn't have a lot of time for that. Yeah. Um, but you know, in, in retrospect, I guess, uh, I've, I've come to think that there's something important about his point about, um, about experiencing the world, how to put this, that, 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 that sort of, uh, quote unquote, objective scientific, uh, analysis or experience of the world is, is not primary in, in an important way Mm -hmm. that, that there's something to that. Um, and, and that seems obvious. Yeah. 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 Like Um, positivism isn't all there is like, I could get on board that. Sure. Well, not, not just that it isn't all that there is, but, um, but that there are other modes of experiencing the world that are sort of more, more fundamental and more primary. Mm -hmm. Um, and that there's something to be said for trying to, and, uh, I guess, describe what those are. Now it's 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 tough to try to build an ontology out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm not sure I'd be interested, but you know, <laughs> I I guess I I sort of looking back on Heidegger, it's made me it's made me wonder whether or not I ought to give it another crack and see if there's see if there's more there than I gave him credit for, and uh, the first time around and and. Um, yeah, I guess I guess I I've been sort of curious about that. Unfortunately, or maybe maybe unfortunately, I, I got rid of my copy of Being in Time, so I'm, it's not going to happen anytime <laughs> soon. But um, yeah, I just I I think I think I was very invested in Platonic ontology the first time <laughs> the first time I read Heidegger. So I I um I think I didn't give him enough credit at, at that point. Well, I, I'm really interested. I, I, I am not going to go back to Heidegger, but I would be really interested to know if you do, how it ends up feeling and what yeah, you end I up thinking. <laughs> hey, um, be- before we stop, yeah. did, were there other, you had a couple, you had like specific questions about phenomenology. I just want to make sure that we got them all. I actually feel like I, I like like before we had this conversation, it was a word that had like some definitions like stuck on it and none of them, and they were contradictory and I didn't understand right. how they all fit or what the hell it all was and whether there was like, it seemed like there was maybe a problem with it, but I couldn't quite, I didn't know if that was my problem or not. And now I think actually, yeah, like I, I, I feel like I could um, walk around with like an understanding that's more whole of what mm-hmm. this thing is. So thank you. Okay. I feel really yeah, good about cool. that. I, I don't think I've given you the same feeling about like uh non Aristotelian theater, but maybe, maybe that's not possible. Can can I just say about the non Aristotelian yeah. theater? I think, I think part of the problem is that, is I just, I just don't think Aristotle had any sort of real sophisticated understanding of, of, how theater works. Yeah. So, but, <laughs> but like, but generations so being of a real peop- problem for sure. But generations of people who like made theater were using his theory as a model for what they thought their, that the experience of an audience ought to be, you know, when, when, it, when 
watching a theatrical spectacle. So, um, you know, even though like you and I might be like, well, that's just dumb. That's not how it works. Like tons of really smart people were like, that is how it works. Um, and it's how it should work. Um, even though like, uh, lots of other people would agree with you and me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, hey, season three is off to a very abstract uh, and uh, serious start. Super abstract. Yeah. Um, let's bring it down to earth uh, a little bit next time. Yeah, I think we're going to. What are we doing? Uh, are we okay? Good. Because I yeah, don't know what the next We're one is. doing, it's going to be a throwdown. It's going to be movies versus TV. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Good, good, good. That yeah. sounds fun. Yeah. Uh, in the meantime, you can. Check out our website. You'll find uh, show notes there, uh, tmwiw.net. You can send us an email at tmwiwpodcast, info. What is is our our email? Oh, no. You you know what? You just go to the contact form on the website. That's what you do. Uh, You can follow the show on Twitter at uh, tmwiwpodcast. You can follow me at Amos Worth. You can't follow me. It. I'm not there. You can't follow Sophie. She still doesn't have a Twitter account. I have better things to do. Yeah, I guess I do too, but <laughs> here we are. Here we are anyway. <laughs> no, this is one of the better things. This is a good thing that we do. Oh, no, I, I meant being on Twitter. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can't do that. I get adrenaline poisoning as it mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so thanks for listening and um, see you soon. Yeah. Bye, everybody. Bye.